Um, one of the things that, based on a conversation yesterday and based on what we're learning, we're learning Pukhavod, Ethics of Our Fathers, some wisdom for life that we've been doing for already, I think, 12 weeks. Um, but one of the things that I was discussing with someone about dating yesterday um, was thinking, or at least him thinking, that he's being picky. Maybe, uh, you know, he's been in and out of dates and uh, at some point he said no to too many people. And uh, maybe I'm being picky. Maybe I want someone that's just uh, from a movie star, you know, some movie and, uh, you know, I'm not being realistic with life. Um, so that was the kind of uh, notion that he was saying when we were talking to each other. And um, sometimes that could be true. Uh, it could be true that people are picky. I think that on most times there's other things that are issues not being picky. Like, for instance, asking yourself, am I really ready to date seriously? And people that are dating but are all over the place and are not really committed. So a lot of times they are causing the challenges for themselves by holding back on um, making the right decisions, getting into someone or getting into a relationship which is serious, right? getting too emotional into something before you even uh, know you want to commit is pointless because then eventually you're going to have to just move on and then you, you weren't thinking of committing anyway. So uh, things, things to think about. So, um, but that being said, let's say like this person, he told me that he's made a lot of mistakes um, he's a lot, he's a bit older and, uh, I'd say a bit, but he, he's a bit older and he feels like he made a lot of mistakes in his dating life. Um, but now he wants to improve. Is it too late? Uh, and of course me, somebody sitting in front of him, I'll say, no, it's never too late. And you can always change the way that you're dating. And he really felt like there were a lot of mistakes that he made along the way as well as maybe I'm being too picky. Now, no one likes to hear this when it comes to dating. Oh, you're being picky. You know, it's the last thing you want to hear. Um, but when I was talking to this uh, individual specifically, I felt like there's something that we need to talk about. And that's when somebody makes the decision to be serious. When that decision actually comes, and you say to yourself, okay, I want to change. I want this, the mistakes I've made in the past and the way that I dated in the past, the things I used to say when I date or the approach that I had to dating, whatever it is, the mistakes that I would have made in the past are done. I want to change. So at that moment in Jewish teaching, there's something called teshuvah, which means I could say, forget the past. I want to move on. Now what? Now I'm stuck because I'm in a certain place where it's not easy for me. And I'm finding it very difficult. At that moment, you need to say to yourself, this is the will of Hashem, and I submit. Meaning, if I've done Teshuvah, you know how people say, oh, well, you shouldn't have messed around for 10 years. It's your fault. Or you're being too, you've been too picky for the past 10 years. It was your fault. Fine. Now I want to change. Can change allow me to say that it's not my fault anymore? Or do I have to always hear in the back of my head, it was your fault. Do you get what I'm saying? Do I have to always think it was my fault? It was my fault. Or can I say that the minute I said to myself, I want change, it's not my fault anymore because I really want change. That's called teshuvah. In Jewish teaching, no matter how far and how wrong I've been, if I say I want to change from now on, and for the past 40 years or that will mean I'm 60. For the past 20 years, I've been dating wrong, right? For the past 20 years, I've been dating absolutely wrong. I'm 40 now, but now I want change. I can't anymore listen to anybody who comes to me and says, hey, you should have learned from your past because they're wrong. Now it's in God's hands. It's not in my hands anymore because now I've done Teshuvah. I've said, I've said I'm done. I want to move on. I regret the past. I regret whatever I did. I regret the path that I took and I want to change. That willingness to change now puts it in God's hands, no more in yours. I hope this makes sense, but this is the mindset that we're meant to have.
that when I make that decision that the way I was dating was wrong from that moment on, that decision now becomes not my fault anymore, even if people tell you it's your fault. It's not my fault anymore. Now it's in God's hands. It's like the person that I know who was smoking for, uh, you know, 60, 65 years. Someone I know was smoking for many years, like, you know, most of his life smoking cigarettes. And at some point he, cha- he stopped. He realized this is really bad for me and stopped. And he's still alive, actually. Uh, he's pretty old right now. He's still alive. But any um, complications of health that might come his way, he could do two things. He could say, ah, it's all the foot, it's my smoking. It was my smoking. Or he could say, I did teshuva on my smoking. My smoking is done. I'm, I'm done. I quit. That's it. Uh, it was a problem, true. But now it's in God's hands. There's this element of, because I'm, I regret and I want to change, I now have the spiritual energy behind me that pushes me to be my backbone and say, okay, I can't be blamed anymore. Don't, don't remind me of my past. Don't blame me. Okay, so this concept is very important, not just in terms of dating, or, but in every aspect of life. And it's actually something that I feel is written very much in this statement in Pirkei Avot. And I want to tell you what it says, and then dig into this point a little bit deeper. Okay, so Rebbe Gamliel was the teacher that we were talking about, and he's in chapter 2. Section number four of chapter two, he used to say like this. He says, make your will what you want. By the way, in Hebrew, to want something is, anyone know? Will. Will, what's, what's the, that's in English. What's will in Hebrew? Raton. There's a lot of Hebrew speakers. Raton is to want. That word comes from the, from the root La roots, to run. Why? Because in Jewish teaching, you don't want something until you run for it. Oh, you want it. I know you want it. But you're not doing an action towards it. That's not yet considered as wanting it. Even though we know deep down, you want it. I want a diet. I really want a diet. Everyone wants to look good. Right? But there's a big gap between wanting to look good and wanting the diet to actually putting away the cake and running away from it, right? So um, everyone wants good for themselves. Anyone here doesn't want, want good? We're talking about good. Anyone here doesn't want good for themselves? Someone's going to put up and say no. Right, someone, I'm waiting. Right, anyone here? I was thinking about it. Oh, good. There you go. I was thinking about you, actually, Brian. But never mind. Right? Everyone wants good for themselves. But that's not in Hebrew terms called wanting yet. Because that's just natural. That's just an internal feeling from you. That doesn't mean anything yet. When we see that you really want something is when you run to it. Meaning, when you actually take action towards that which you want. That's when you prove that what you want is what you really, really want. How does the song go? Oh, whatever. Okay. All right, all right. Okay, so, you know, you get what I mean, right? You know what you want, what you really, really want? Yeah? So that's, that's what you've got to want. If you want, you can't just say you really want, or you really, really want it. You want it, right? You've got to want it, you've got to do it. It's not enough to say that you want something, because that's natural. That's your internal part of you, which feels like it wants that's, that's going to happen either way. Every kid wants to be safe. Oh, maybe not. Okay, bad example. But everyone wants, everyone wants a certain good if you're aware of that good. Like, let's say I'm aware that I need to lose weight. So you want it. But you, you're not considered as wanting it until you actually run to it, until you actually take the action. Okay? Action is what proves whether you really want something. That's why in Hebrew, want is to run. It's interesting, but he says like this. He says, make that you want is what God wants, so that what God wants, so that, sorry, so that what you want is what God will want also. Okay, again, 
Make, it continues, it keeps going on, it gets confusing. Make, at least for me, for you guys it's fine. For me it gets confusing. Make what you want. Sorry, again, I'm confused. Make what God wants, what you want. So that God will make what you want, what he wants. That is the statement. Okay, so uh, for instance, this is a very true situation. This is in a multiple areas of looking at Judaism, but it's so important. Let me give you the first example. Um, they say that, okay, now don't take me wrongly here or, or take this in a wrong way, but they say, and I've heard this actually, I was once listening to a radio in Israel, um, of a rabbi who's also a scientist and a scientist, and he works in um, infertility. And one of the things he was talking about in infertility is the idea of not um, being pressured. That that has a big aspect of a big connection towards infertility. Meaning that at some point when somebody feels like, oh my gosh, I need to have a kid because I'm getting to an age where it's, I'm getting older and it's really desperate. So that desperacy actually has an effect on the body and makes it more difficult for fertility to happen. Make sense? Meaning the mental aspect can actually affect the infertility. And I found that very interesting because what does Judaism say? When something's not going our way, what are we meant to do? What we're really meant to do is say that it's his will, submit at some point. Not easily done. Okay, we could talk about how to do that. But to submit at some point to say, this is not in my control, as much as I thought it was. And that minute that there's a submission where I say, it's his will, and that's, if that's what he wants, that's what I want too. Uh, it's, it's what I want. It's not easy. It's not, I, it's not like I completely am I'm dancing with it, but it's, it's what he wants, so I'm okay with it. I can submit. And at that moment that there's a certain sense of submission where I say, okay, that's what he wants. So then there's a certain calmness that happens. I know, I know of a rabbi that spoke in a place where he was telling the story. And he, well, he was telling a story, God lose weight. He was telling a story of, um, of, well, he was speaking to a crowd of people that, uh, uh, to a support group of people that couldn't, um, weren't getting married and they were already getting older and they felt like, you know, they were despondent, people that were lonely and very sad about it. And they really felt like dating is so difficult. So they made these different support groups in New, in New York, support groups for people that way that felt this way and they wanted to get together. So um, he felt like the atmosphere was very down and he wanted to change the atmosphere. Now, I don't know if I could do this, but the way he said it and the way he gave it over was brilliant. And one of the things he spoke about was this. He said this, look, I'm sure you've all tried. You've all done your part. Don't let anyone tell you that you made mistakes, that you've been too picky, that you've done wrong. No one wants to be in this situation. He stood up and he said this. No one wants to be in this difficult situation. That's why you're here. I'm sure it's not your fault. But for some reason, this is what God wants. We don't know why. And we could talk about this. But for some reason, this is what needs to be. So instead of making it your will not to be here, make it his will that he wants you to be here. Meaning submit to the situation that this is what he wants. As hard as this might be and as difficult as this might be to hear. But that submission can transform lives. When somebody's able to say that although this is not in my control, but this is what he wants, specifically because it's not in my control, this is what he wants, I'm able to submit. There's a certain calmness that's given off me and that can change everything. 
There's even, there's a rabbi, Rav Arush, who, um, a teacher of, breath, of the Breslov movement. And I don't know if you've heard of the thank you Hashem bracelets that have been going around, right? So they started from this concept of even though something's not going my way, but this is God's way. So thank you, Hashem. And there's a song that they made. Thank you, Hashem. Meaning, I want a child right now. This, is, this was actually a story with Rav, Rav Arush, but someone was sitting in front of him. And she told him, why is it so difficult? Why is it so difficult for me? Why is life so difficult? And the rabbi looked at her and said to her, I don't know your situation. I'm not sure if you will want to hear this. But no matter how difficult this is, of all the difficulties you're having, have you thanked Hashem for anything good that's happened your way till this point? And as much as it's hard, someone who's in a situation doesn't want to hear it. Okay? But being able to say thank you for the most challenging situations because in that challenge, there's been many good things that came my way. Many good things. I was in a healthy home. I had hot water. I had, we can give you lists. No matter how difficult somebody's going through, there are lists of things that are good that came your way. And if somebody's able to find joy in those situations, even though, by the way, pain is real. The pain and suffering and challenges that people can go through is real. But if somebody's able to say, this is what he wants, thank you, actually things start changing the other way. It transforms the situation to the other direction. And that's what he says here. He says that when you make what God wants, what you want, eventually he will make what you want as what he wants as well. Even though it wasn't necessarily what he wants. Okay. Then he continues and he says, oh, by the way, this also is referring to doing mitzvot, good deeds. Okay. This is, this is, only, this is not only about situations of life. But it's also in relation to doing good deeds. When somebody says, I'm doing Shabbat because I was born into it. What can I do? Maybe one day I'll bring it into my kids. I'll give it to my kids one day. But it's not really what I want. It's because it's what I was told that God wants. I didn't try to find reason behind it. Why it should make sense. I didn't think, oh wait, maybe Shabbat. I always say this. When somebody looks... The worst thing, you know, you know, if you've got like a medical condition and they tell you, did you Google it? I come in like with tons of anxiety to the doctor. I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got a problem. I'm telling you, right? He's like, did you Google this? This, this actually happened to me. Did you Google it? I said, yeah. He's like, you never look at Google again, right? When it comes to some health issue that you have, because you know, you see you've got some kind of problem. It gives you a thousand of possibilities of the problem that you have and you diagnose yourself with. With, with your Google, that's your new doctor. Uh-uh, that's the worst thing you can do. So, um, that's what, when somebody Googles, let's say, Shabbat, okay, and it's their first experience about something Judy, Jewish. Yeah, they, they heard about Shabbat, they want to look into it, yeah, they, they want to check it out. So what do they do? They Google it. Worst thing ever. Why? Worst thing to do that. Why? Well, you've got to experience it. What else? It's true. You've got to experience it first. Well, you'll have lots of confused interpretations. Go on, Kobe. Exactly. It will give you a list of a thousand things you cannot do. Uh, the toilet paper. Can't cut the, people are obsessed with Shabbat and toilet paper. You can't cut the toilet paper. Just get some tissues, for goodness sake. Yeah, just get the regular tissues. Toilet paper. Right, Shabbat and toilet paper. If anyone doesn't know what I'm talking about, ask someone after. They'll explain to you. Not, it's not COVID related. Anyway. So I was, no, don't Google it. I don't know what you'll see. So uh, don't Google Shabbat. Do you know why? Because you'll get a list of a thousand things you can't do. Does that sound like fun? Is that Shabbat? 
Is that what Shabbat's all about, right? When you have a good time on Shabbat, you think of all the things you can't do. We don't think like that. Somebody who does Shabbat doesn't think like that. What do I think of? All the things I gain in return for the things that I don't do. That's what I'm thinking about. When I do Shabbat, I don't think of uh, the fact that I can't be on my phone. I think of the fact that without my phone, I get to see my kid, for goodness sake, after six days of working, you know, of running around. Finally, I get to speak to my children and be a person at the end of the day. When you're in it, like you said, you actually start thinking about what you're gaining, not what you're losing. Now, that is the approach that a person has to have. Why does God want me to do Shabbat? Because he needs me to do Shabbat. Right? According to Jewish teaching, God is infinite. That means he doesn't need you. He doesn't need anything you do. He doesn't need your prayers. He doesn't need zero from you. But the only thing he wants is you to succeed. You know what it's like? It's like a, a teacher, a, a father that says, I want my kid to go to college. And his kids, it's a bad example, by the way, because sometimes it's wrong to go to college, but never mind. Right? The kid says, uh, I don't want to go to school. And the father says, no, listen, I have money. Either way, you'll have a job covered, but at least try it. And you know what? If you do it, I'll pay your tuition and I'll give you a gift of $100,000. Nice, good deal. Okay, the kid says, okay, I'm off. I'll go. The kid goes to college and he sits there and he's doing it. He's thinking to himself, why am I doing it? To make my dad happy. It's true, he's making his dad happy. Why am I doing it? Because I'm going to get $100,000. It's true, he's going to get $100,000. But that's not the reason why his dad wants him to do it. Why does his dad want him to do it? His dad needs it for himself. He'd rather have the $100,000 for his own pocket. Why does his dad want him to go to school? Because it's the best thing for him. I don't need it. It's the best thing for you. That's how we approach Judaism also. God doesn't need anything we do. But... If you look at Judaism, all the things that we do is his will. It's his will for me to do it, but for me at the end of the day, because he doesn't need it. And that's also the meaning behind these words. When it says, do his will like your will, make, make your will, his will your will. What he's saying is, it should be your will because he doesn't need it for you, for himself. He wants it for you anyway. It's not for his benefit at all. He just wants to give to you. That's the reason why God created us. In Jewish teaching, he's an infinite being, does not need to take anything, but only wants to give. And he continues and he says, Hillel continues and says, and then we'll go to the next topic because this is, but this stuff is gold. I really believe it. He says the next statement is, avoid doing your will for the sake of his will in order that others will avoid their will for the sake of yours. The opposite. This time he's talking about negative things. You're about to get angry. You're about to explode. And God doesn't want you to be angry, right? He wants you to be calm. He wants you to succeed. But you feel like, ah, I want to get angry. So what's God's will? That you shouldn't get angry. That's called batel. A nullify, stop, compromise. Your will stop for the sake of God's will, which is don't be angry. So there are positive things that we should do, like mitzvot that are positive, like Shabbat, tefillin, uh, you know, different things that we do positive. And then there's things that we shouldn't do, things that we're not meant to do. Negative commandments, those ones, the negative things, we're told, avoid doing them because it's his will. And make it that even though it's your will to do them, but you know that his will is you shouldn't. And what do you gain in return? Others will compromise for you also. A person that compromises, others will compromise for them too. Should I give you a good example? Someone who goes to court and he gets caught for the first time stealing money. He's doing it. He did a scam. He got caught $1,000 was unlawful and he achieved that money in an in a unlawful way. 
So he stands up in court and they say, who, who are you? They ask him complete questions that are completely irrelevant. Who are you? Where, where are you from? What is your story? What do you do for a living? And he starts saying, yeah, I, I run a nonprofit. I help people. I do this. I do that. He gives a whole list of good things that he does. So what are you doing here in court? I don't know. I slipped up. This was a one-time thing. Suddenly the judge listens to the story and says, you know what? This time, pay the money in return and that's it. No fine. How come? He asked him questions that are completely irrelevant. I'll tell you why. Because that's the way the world works. When someone compromises for others, others will compromise for you. It's like that in relationships too. If you're able to compromise for the other, the other will compromise for you. It goes hand in hand. And that's what it says here. When somebody compromises, whether it's anger, you think, oh, that's energy. I was meant to explode, but I held it back. Where does that energy go? Where does it go? I held it inside me. The answer is it comes back to me from somebody else. They also avoid somehow charging me the money. They also, in another situation, will avoid hurting me because they, in my energy, I'm a person that also compromised. And that's what it says here. When we compromise, others will compromise for us to allow us to continue to be good. And that's how the world works. It works like that in relationships and every aspect of life. So that is the statement of Rabban Gamliel. And now we're going to go into Hillel's statement, which is fascinating. And then we'll finish off from there. Okay. Hillel said, Hillel said something very interesting. He says, do not separate yourself from the congregation. Don't be different. Well, look at me. Do I look different? Huh? What does it mean? Don't be different. Don't be different than the congregation. What about Abraham? What was his name? Abraham? Ha? Huh? Anyone know? Ha Ivri. Ivri in Hebrew comes from the word Ever on the other side. Abram was the guy that went against the flow. You have you heard the saying? How do you know if a fish is going is alive in the water? Huh? Okay, if it's that could be dead, you know. If it's, um, how do you know if a fish is for sure alive in the water? The answer is, if it goes against the flow, if it goes in the other direction, then you know for sure the water's going this way, the fish is going the other way, it's alive. What does it say? Don't be different. Follow the crowds. Wait, is that true? Does that make sense? Does anyone like that statement? Don't separate yourself from the congregation. Individuality. Yeah, what about individuality? Right, that's your question? Yeah. yeah, what about each person being himself? What about going against the flow like Abraham and Noah and everyone else that came after, right, who were greats and giants? They went against the flow. So what's the answer? This statement, this is very important, of don't separate yourself from the congregation is talking about when people are doing good. Everyone in town is helping out this person. Don't say, oh, there's enough people doing it. Why should I get involved? Yeah, but that person is going through a very difficult, more than anyone else. And for some reason, everyone's helping this person much more than anyone else. Yeah, but why? There's homeless, there's many homeless. There's always one person that comes out and brings out a comment. No. At this moment, that's what everyone else is doing. When it comes to good, don't be different. But when it comes to bad, it says, don't come close to bad. Don't be close to it. Don't be friends with evil. Of course, when it comes to bad, you run away. This is actually written down in Mesilat Yesharim, Path of the Just. He says, when does it say, don't separate yourself from the congregation? When should you be with the people? When people are acting like humans. But if people are acting like animals, then of course one should run away. The only time you should come close and be with the flow is when people are doing good things. 
Someone comes and says, no, the 9th of Av is a sad day. So I don't want to be part of that day. Yeah, but if everyone is sad for a good reason, then you will be part of that congregation also in other things as well. There's always one that says, oh, I'm not in. I'm not doing it. I'm not going to do it. Well, it depends. It's good to be different and independent and individual. But in cases where it's good, not in cases where it's bad, not in cases where it's good, when it comes to being good, you should go with the flow of what the congregation is doing. That is a very important rule. You know, sometimes you think, okay, whatever, you know, uh, everyone's sitting around this table, I'm done, I'm out. There's something happening that's important we need to speak about. Yeah, I'm out, I'm not into it. Well, not always. Don't always run away. Join the situation if that's a good thing that people are doing. It's an important thing to be part of. Okay, so that's the statement of Hillel. And then he says something else. He says, very interesting. He says, don't believe in yourself until the day you die. Does that make sense? Not really, huh? Does it make sense to not believe in yourself until the day you die? What does that mean? Shouldn't a person believe in himself? Yeah. Maybe it's that you're always changing, you're constantly involved, like you're involved in growth. So you're not necessarily who you are at that moment. So even if you believe that you're a certain person, you might be more than you're, you're limiting yourself by believing that that's who you are because you really could be much more. Oh, that's beautiful. Believe, what it's saying is, don't believe in yourself until the day you die, meaning don't believe that you have no potential. Don't believe that you have only a limited potential. You have much more than you think. I love that. That's beautiful. That really is a beautiful uh, understanding. You are much more than you think. I can attest to that big time. This is the, what the commentaries that I saw say. Okay? When they says, don't believe in yourself until the day you die, this is what they said. They said, when it comes to doing wrong, don't say, oh, I've overcome this. I've overcome this challenge. I'm good now. Anger, for instance. I've overcome anger. That's it. I'm good. I'm strong. I can never fall in this. I am, I am strong. This will not happen to me. It will happen to someone else. No, no, no. You must believe that it can happen to you as well. Even though you've overcome this situation in the past, and you've now been three years where you've overcome your anger, three years down the line, don't believe that that anger won't happen again. It can happen again. If you're put into that situation, it can happen again. If you failed in this type of personality, it can happen again. When it says don't believe in yourself until the day you die, it means that you can always fail and don't think that you're always going to be perfect. So make the right boundaries to avoid failure. That is the statement that he says. Why is this important? Because you get depression otherwise. This is so, this is gold. When, when does someone have to get, start getting down and depressed? When they say to themselves, I expected from myself not to fall in this situation. I, I can't believe it. I've gone back to when I was 20. This, was, this is the problems that I was dealing with when I was 25. Why am I still here? When somebody holds themselves to a certain standard, they say, okay, I've overcome this challenge. That's it. I'm done. I'm strong. Three years down the line, they say to themselves, that's it. I'm good. I'm strong. You have to know that you're human and you can fall again in that trap. Be aware that if you fell in that trap in the past, you could fall again in the future. Oh, but the past three years, I never did it. It doesn't matter. If you don't believe that you can't fall, and you say to yourself, that's it, I'm perfect in this regard. Know that you will be depressed if you fall. Because you'll say to yourself, well, I worked five years, I overcame it, and now I fell. How? I'm shocked. That's what someone needs to know. Don't believe in yourself until the day you die. It means... Don't think that you can't fall, because you can.
If you fell once in the past, you will fall again in the future. And it happens. Even Solomon the Great fell. He said, no, I understand exactly how I should be. I know exactly what. And he fell. He had a, a thousand wives, which was something he was not allowed to have in Jewish teaching. He came, he did it from a good perspective. He was the king of Israel. And he said to himself, if I marry the daughter of every single king of the world, I will be able to bring peace to the world as well. And everyone wanted their daughter to marry Solomon. Don't think it was in any promiscuous way. Solomon was the greatest of the greats. But even though he had good intentions, eventually he fell. Why? Because you can't be greater than what the Torah tells you. And the Torah already tells you you can't do that. He went too far. He said, no, I understand. I know exactly what's better. No, you don't. The Torah already says. That's what it. Don't believe in yourself until the day you die. Even if you're 80. And you say, oh, I've overcome that challenge when I was 25 years old. It doesn't matter. You could still fall at 80. It, until the day a person dies. If it comes to failing or making mistakes. If you made that mistake in the past. You can make that mistake again in the future. Oh, I'm, mat I'm mature now. I have experience. You made that mistake in the past. You can make it again in the future. If you don't have that belief, then when you do fall, you'll be shocked at yourself. How did I do it? I went back 20 years. Okay, so that's the statement that he says. And then finally, two more statements. He says, don't judge your friend until you get into his place. Can you ever get into someone's place? No. Can you be his parent? Can you know his parents? Can you be in his life? Can you be in her life? No, you can't. Could you know their upbringing, their genetic um, uh, makeup? Could you, do you have all of their personality? Are you in their box? And the answer is you can never be. And for that reason, when it says don't judge somebody until you're in their place, it means don't judge them at all. Avoid judging them because you can never be in their shoes. This is the statement of Hillel. And it means something on a much bigger level. Look, listen to this. Oh, I wanted to say also, by the way. Okay, I'll move on. But it says, uh, no, because it's too long. But uh, don't judge those that are less than you. Why would you judge those that are around you? Why would you do that? Huh? We're talking about people that are trying to be good. And they say, oh, that person, why is he failing? It doesn't make sense. Why are they doing this? Idiot. Stupid. Wrong. And you start talking about it to your friends. How, why are they doing it? They're messing up. What do we say? Don't think that you're better than them. Because you don't, you're not in his shoes. If you were in his shoes, maybe you would come into the same situation as him. And this actually was told a story of the Talmud. Rav Ashi, one of the rabbis of the Talmud said, about the king Menashe who came many, many years before him, hundreds of years before him. There was a great king Menashe who fell with idol worship. He was one of the kings of the Jewish people and he fell with idol worship. He caused tremendous chaos to the Jewish people. And this rabbi from the Talmud, Rav Ashi, couldn't understand how someone like Menashe could fall, fall and fail in such a way. How could someone fail like this? So Ravashi couldn't understand it. And that night, in his dream, he meets the king, Menashe. And this Menashe asks him a question that breaks apart all of his understanding of the Talmud. Ravashi was a great, one of the writers of the Talmud. And the king, Menashe, asked him a question, he couldn't answer it. He said, what, what is the answer to this question? In his dream, he asks Menashe, king Menashe, what is the answer? What is the answer? He says, I'm not telling you. Please tell me. I need to know. Otherwise, I'm going to be confused. And at the end, King Menashe tells him the response to the question. He tells him the answer. So Ravashi says, someone so great like you, I never understood how you can fall. You fell in a way that the entire Jewish people followed you in idol worship. How did you fall so badly? And he says, if you were with me back then, you would have run behind me like a little child. 
and followed me as well. Because you weren't in my times. And you didn't know what it was like back then. The desire for idol worship was back then. It seems funny to us. But back then when I was in that time, that was the thing that was drawing everyone. And I fell in that trap. If you were with me, you would have fallen in it for sure. Don't judge the people that came before you until you stand in their place. That's what he says. And he says also another statement, which is very important. He says, don't say something that you don't want to be heard by others. Because at the end of the day, if you do, it will be heard. Okay, that's kind of obvious. Well, if you say it, it's going to be a meaning. In Jewish teaching, there is uh, uh, a saying that there's oznaim lakotel, the walls hear you also. And if there's something that you don't want people to know, don't even tell it to your kids one day. Don't tell it to the wall. Because eventually things will get around. Why is it important not to say things to the public? Why is it important to keep things quiet? You feel the urge to share something that happened to you. Why is it important to keep things quiet? Does anyone know? Um, just because like, things will quickly escalate and people will just... Right, people will talk, things will escalate, people will give a bad eye on you. Right, that's something that people will start looking down. Oh, how come? Right. It, won't, it won't allow it to come into fruition. Kabbalistically, there's a teaching. And it says, Which means... Sorry. That was probably me activating Siri or Google. Did I say sorry before or something? So, uh, uh, what were we saying? So, uh, don't say... Something that you don't want people to hear because eventually it will be heard. So the meaning of that phrase. Oh, so the meaning of that phrase is uh, blessings only come from things that you cover yourself away from. Meaning, if it's, if it's things that people don't see and it's not showing, it's not flashing, more blessing will come your way. So, you know, you have something good. It's not always important to flash it to the public because that way people's eyes are on it. And that will avoid the blessing coming your way. It says, Blessings only come to something that's hidden from the eye. That's why it says that when somebody's pregnant, the first three months, since you can't see it, many people don't talk about it. Right? Because for the first, first three months, you don't see the pregnancy. And only after three months you start seeing, that's when it's noticeable to the eye. Before then we don't talk because we want the blessing to come. Once it's seen anyway, so that's fine. But before that, we avoid talking. Things that are hidden, and sh if they're going to be seen anyway, fine. But things that can be hidden will bring more blessings to your life. And it's important to know that. Don't always feel the urge to share information with everyone. Okay? And he says also, uh, by the way, also telling people things that you don't want them to hear. Or things, secrets will make them not trust you as well. Because what happens is, you say, you say to yourself, oh, this is my best friend. I'll tell him all my secrets. Yeah, but when you tell him your secrets, do you know what happens? He'll know that he can't trust you anymore. So you're not that type of person that could be trusted. You can't hold back your mouth from certain times when you need to speak. And finally, he says, don't say that when I have time, I will study Maybe you will not have the time. Which means, like this, it says in Kohelet, it says, remember God when you're young. Because if you don't, time gets more difficult. More challenges happen. And then you'll get to the age where you say, I don't have any more will. So what do people do? They say, ah, you know, I'm young right now. Spirituality, Judaism, that's not so important. I'm young. When I get older, I'll get involved a bit more. So you get married. Oh, now I just got married. You know, the first year takes time. After the first year, I'll get a bit more involved. I'll work on my spirituality and my health, on my spiritual health. Uh, later on, the first year of marriage, suddenly you have a kid. Oh, well, kids, that's a lot of work. When, after I have kids, 
I'll start thinking about my Judaism. And then eventually a person gets to his old age and what does he say? Oh, I don't have any head for this anymore. I'm old. I don't have energy. I am where I am. And that's what it is. So that's why he says, don't say, I'll do things when I have time. Because maybe you won't have time. Because as time goes on, your time is more limited. As you get older, there's more things that you have in your head, not less. So don't say, when I have time, I'll do this thing that I'm ambitious about. Do it now. And this actually is one of the stories of a great rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer ben Hokonus, who was one of the greatest, one of the most wealthy rabbis of the Talmud. The story with him was that his dad, his father, was a farm owner. He lived on the outskirts of Jerusalem. His father was Hokonus. And he didn't grow his child up with any Jewish values at all. No Jewish teaching. A very good person. And very wealthy. And he had many sons. And all his sons would work in the fields. Thrashing, farming. He had multiple. He had ships, everything. His children would work for him. It was a family business. And there was one troublemaker son. His name was Eliezer. Not only was he not interested... He hated working. He didn't want to work. And there was a certain point where his father notices him crying. He's sad. He says to him, my son, what, what's going on? Why are you sad? He said, I don't enjoy this. So his father says, okay, you know what? Instead of working on a rocky mountain, let's take you down to the lower fields where there's less rocks. You can work there better. He says, okay, fine. Takes him down. After a few weeks, he sees again, his son's unhappy. Another job, not happy. What's going on? Why are you unhappy? Tries different jobs. And his son's not happy. He asks him, what, do you, what, what is wrong? He says, I don't want this. I don't feel joy in this. I feel like my potential could be used for something else. I want to go to Jerusalem and study Torah. This is in the times of the Talmud. And his father said, fine, by all means, go. Eliezer ben Hokonos in those days to travel was, you say goodbye, you said goodbye. And he went to Jerusalem and he went to Rabbi Yochanan Hazakai, the great Rabbi Yochanan, one of the great rabbis of the Talmud also. And he was his student. Eliezer starts studying by him. And he left his father's wealth, left all the money that his father gave him and went with nothing to Jerusalem alone. His father said, you go, you go, that's it, go. But you're not part of my business. And Eliezer went alone with no money and sits finds some place for cheap to rent and he stays there and he comes every day to study and he sits and studies every day after a few days the rabbi says there's a smell in this there's an odor of someone who's not eating well someone who's is, well, the new that new kid he goes over to him and he says to him did you eat recently what have you been eating and he says, no, whatever I have. And he finds out that in the house that he's staying at, he went, he went to the house, the people that he's staying at, and he asked them, did he pay for food also? They said, no, he only paid for stay, lodging. So they found out that he's not been eating. So the rabbi says, from now on, I cover your food. And I bless you that the suffering that you put into your mouth, that you couldn't even... You couldn't, uh, there was an odor that to a point where you couldn't, you, you weren't eating for so many days, that mouth will bring great light to the world and great wisdom to the world. I bless you that that's what happens. And it's true that in those days when a rabbi blessed you, it was real. So he blessed him and Rebeliezer slowly became one of the greatest, he called Rebeliezer Hagadol, the great Rebeliezer, that was the name of him in the Talmud. He became one of the greatest rabbis of the Talmud. And his, his father, Hokonus, who kind of dismissed his child, Eliezer, in his old age, his sons come to him and they say to him, listen, we've been working on these fields with you, dad, our whole life. And, you know, you're getting old. But you have a son, Eliezer, who ditched all of us and he went to study. I want to ask you, when you pass on, he shouldn't be able to have any kind of inheritance. He shouldn't have zero. 
We worked on the fields. He shouldn't have any he shouldn't have anything. He wasn't here all this time. And his father says, You know, you're right. I'm gonna go to Jerusalem and tell him. And he goes to Jerusalem, travels to Jerusalem to see his son after many, many years. And he walks in to the place, the study hall, where they're studying. And they're having a celebration because someone just finished a Talmud, a study. And they're having a big celebration. And they all hear that Horkunus, the great wealthy Horkunus, is in town. So they say, you know, the noise gets around. They tell the great rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan, look, Horkunus, the father of Eliezer, this kid that's been here studying Torah, his father's here. Immediately, Rabbi Yochanan calls Eliezer ben Horkunus, Eliezer the son of Horkunus. He calls him up and he says, please speak for us. Eliezer stands up and gives one of the greatest speeches ever. And everyone goes to him and congratulates him. They kiss his hand. Even Rabbi Yochanan, the greatest rabbi of the Jewish people at that time, kisses the hand of Eliezer. And at that point, his father, Hokanus, listens to the speech and says, what's such wisdom from my son? This kid that we all neglected? Look what became of him. Unbelievable. And he makes an oath the exact opposite, that I'm going to give all of my wealth to Eliezer and all of my sons are going to work under him. They will have obviously great portions of his wealth, but he's going to manage the whole thing. A mind like this is what can manage my business. And not only did Rabbi Eliezer Gadol become the great Talmud scholar, but he also became one of the wealthiest rabbis of the Talmud also. And what do we learn from Rabbi Eliezer ben Hukunus? We learn from him the great idea of when I believe that I can do something great, don't say, oh, later on I'll do it. When I'm old, I'll do it. From a young age, he said, I want to do something more. He didn't say, I'll oh, wait later. For now I'm working. His ambition at a young age was to make a difference, to study, and he went with it. And he became not only the greatest of wealths, but also the greatest of the greats, one of the greatest teachers of the Talmud. So anyway, I'll just recap some of the things we spoke about. First is, um, we said that what you want should be what God wants, because God wants what you want also. And he only does it, everything you do is for yourself anyway. Whenever you do Judaism, it's really what God wants, yeah? But God only doesn't need it, so it's really for you. Okay, we spoke about that concept. Then we spoke about not separating yourself from the public in times that they're doing good things, but in times that they do bad, you run away and you don't be with them, right? When people are acting like humans, you be with them. When they're acting like animals, you run away. Then we said, don't believe in yourself until the day you die, which means don't believe in the fact that you can fall. If you fell in the past, you can fall again because no that if you don't believe in that, then you don't believe you're human. And if you fall, you can get, dep- if you don't, if you fall and you believe you can never fail, you'll get depressed. Don't judge your friend until you get into his place. Don't say, oh, I'm up here. Why is he down there? Why is she down there? What are they thinking? You're not in his place. You don't know his story. Don't say something that won't be heard. Don't share secrets with people. If you don't want people to know the secrets, in fact, a lot of times it's good to keep your mouth shut, zip it, like they say, right? So that way, blessings can come your way, it says. And finally, don't say, when I have time, I'll do it. Because maybe later on, it'll be more difficult and you won't have time. If you're young, now, everyone that's here is doing good Jew- Jewish stuff, you know, coming to the Taco Torah Tuesdays and Shabbat and everything else that you guys do. Don't say that when I'm older, I'll do Shabbat. When I'm older, I'll introduce it to my kids. Because if you're not going to do it now, you'll probably, chances are it's going to be more difficult. It's not impossible, but more difficult you'll do it later on. Okay, I hope that was meaningful and fun. And uh, thank you.